morning <clears throat> or good afternoon or good evening, ladies and gentlemen, wherever you might be. <clears throat> I'm uh, Dr. John Duke Anthony, the founding president and chief executive officer of the National Council on US-Arab Relations. <clears throat> Welcome to the ongoing series of what we like to refer to as the National Council uh, as a cerebral massage. Uh, where we think out of the box, we analyze out of the box, we have critical thinking out of the box, <clears throat> we come up with implications, ramifications uh, pertaining to substance, to approaches, uh, to policies, to positions, to actions, to attitudes, pertaining to what? <clears throat> pertaining in the most macro sense, America's relations with the Arab region, the Middle East, and the Islamic world. And the other way around, events and issues and challenges and opportunities in those three regions as to how they impact and have an effect on the United States and America's friends, uh, allies, and strategic partners. At both ends of these bridges, of these links, there are a variety of constants and variables uh, that pertain uh, to America's needs, America's concerns, America's interests, America's goals and objectives. And likewise, they're not the exact opposite, nor are they exact similar needs, concerns, and interests, and policies, and positions, and actions, and attitudes of our partners, of our friends, of our allies. Those uh, will fall us in control of uh, than our own. But even with regard to our own, we are subject to shocks and uncertainty. And here we are at a flexing point in history uh, that as most of the mainstream and non-mainstream <clears throat> news analysts and commentators refer to as the most crisis-laden and potential uh, series of events and activities since the ending of the Second World War in 1945. Now, how are we going to unpack all that is occurring and not occurring? And as these phenomena, forces and factors impact on America's national needs and legitimate and aspirational needs and concerns uh, pertaining to our own uh, goals, foreign relations and policies, on one hand, and those of our friends as well as our adversaries on the other. That's a lot to try to make straight or clarify and less complex. Uh, but let's that be no mistake. <clears throat> we are at a point of crisis in lexicons and monikers and language and concepts behind words that are used in sentences and phrases uh, are important. Uh, all of which so come into play when we try to make sense of this uncertain and sometimes seemingly senseless region with regard to certain fast-breaking uh, phenomena. How are we going to do this? Uh, we're talking about three of the world's, the three of the world's greatest superpowers, the United States, China, and Russia. There are similarities of needs, concerns, and interests among the three, and there are profound differences and subtleties and nuances 
at both. We need specialists, not anybody who's simply interested in these phenomena <clears throat> to express her or his perspective, point of view, and analysis. Uh, we have two of the world's finest, not just America's, not just those who specialize in the Arab region, the Middle East, and the Islamic world, but those who focus on China and the former Soviet Union, namely Russia, uh, as, as well. Who are these individuals? And we will be starting with uh, David Rundell, who's a retired Korea U.S. Foreign Service officer who spent the overwhelming majority of his working days and time in Saudi Arabia. Uh, but he also had postings elsewhere in the Arab region, as well as in Washington. I first met David when he was in the audience at uh, Oxford, at uh, St. Anthony's uh, College, uh, where I was a guest lecturer in the late 1970s and early 1980s. And he was a student of the late Albert Hurani, a lawyer may his soul rest in peace. Uh, Michael Gofella, I met him far more recently when he was a, a close uh, proxy, uh, alter ego in some ways for the office of the vice president, Richard Cheney, Dick Cheney uh, in Riyadh. Uh, David Rondell is the only American career foreign service officer to my knowledge who served substantial, intensive, extensive periods of time in Riyadh, the capital, but also Jeddah and the oil patch, so to speak, in the Eastern province in the front. Um, America needs and needed at the time these kinds of specialization. And David Rondell is the one who provided those specializations more than anyone I've ever known. And Michael Gofella also in the bigger picture on the strategic implications and ramifications of America's relationships with Saudi Arabia, much envied relationship uh, because of Saudi Arabia's pivotal role for the world's uh, nearly 2 billion uh, Muslims uh, adherence to the uh, fastest growing monotheistic uh, faith of the three monotheistic faiths of Jude Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. Uh, Michael has written, uh, David rather, has written a book called Vision and Mirage, having to do with Saudi Arabia. And we were pleased, pleasured, and honored uh, to have an entire session on David's views of what was coming down the track in Saudi Arabia and what the implications would be uh, for the country itself domestically internal dynamics, but also bilaterally with the United States, multilaterally with the six country Gulf Cooperation Council for which Saudi Arabia is the uh, uh, capital of the headquarters of the General Secretariat of Bahrain, Kuwait, Oman, Qatar, the United Arab Emirates and Saudi Arabia. Uh, following uh, uh, David uh, will be Michael Gofella, and Michael <clears throat> works closely with David uh, on the macro and the micro. And we at the National Council try to add something on the media between those two extremes there to unpack this 
situation having to do with Russia, China, Saudi Arabia, and other Arab, Middle Eastern, Islamic uh, countries, and how they are impacting the so-called fast-breaking news having to do with the Ukraine, having to do with Russia, uh, and having to do with China. We have a lot to focus on here. Each will speak for 15 minutes, and then I will fire questions at them that are being funneled to me by listeners and viewers. First off, David Rundell. Thank you, Dr. Anthony. It's always a pleasure to speak to you and your interested group, uh, which we can assume are quite well informed about the Middle East. So some of the things I will talk about today uh, require a little bit of background, and I think most of the people you're, in your audience have it. Yeah. Um, the first thing to say, though, is that the world still runs on oil. I think there is an increasing belief that that somehow is a past era. The truth is that 30% of global energy still comes from oil, 80% still comes from hydrocarbons, and when you talk about transportation, fuel oil and gasoline and jet fuel and, and uh, heavy oil for ships, 90% uh, of that now still comes from, over 90% comes from oil. So the world runs on oil and the increase in oil prices, which we're seeing now is a tax. It uh, is a tax on everything and everybody. And it particularly affects those who are less well off. In particular, those people who a substantial part of their income is spent on transportation. Uh, and there are people like that. There are people who you know, spend a substantial amount of their uh, income driving to work. So these, these are real issues for the American people. This is not something that we're, that is the realm of think tanks uh, and academics. So what I wanted to talk about today is a profound change in the way the oil markets are operating today. And we have talked about that in terms of a new axis of oil. And the axis of oil that we're speaking about is the two largest exporters, Saudi Arabia and Russia, and the largest importer, China. This is probably the third transition in the global oil market. The first was in the 70s when the international oil companies, the Seven Sisters, who had dominated the industry for decades, were displaced by OPEC. OPEC's importance has waxed and waned over the years. I think you could argue that to some extent it was waning until King Salman and his son, uh, Mohammed bin Salman, if you will, resurrected OPEC, reinvigorated OPEC, revitalized OPEC, whatever you want to call it, by creating something called OPEC plus, which includes Russia. So between the two of them, they have the, by far the largest share of not 
only production. The United States has production, but they have exportable oil. And so in the global marketplace, they are very significant. They also have excess capacity, particularly Saudi Arabia, which can be turned on and off by fiat. That's significant. The United States may have excess capacity over time, but there are dozens, in fact, hundreds of independent producers in the United States who don't take their orders from Washington. One phone call from the king will change Saudi oil production by hundreds of thousands of barrels a day. Putin can't do it quite as dramatically as that, but he still has a great deal more influence over far fewer producers than exist uh, in the United States. So this alliance, um, which took quite a bit of diplomatic skill to negotiate, and I think that's something that you know, we need to remember that the Saudis did this, and it, was, it, was, it is an achievement that they have, they have dramatically increased their role in oil markets again by bringing the Russians in. And they do not want to see that hard work dissipated. So, uh, and that is very relevant because they have, again, uh, you listeners know that there is an OPEC agreement, an OPEC plus agreement that will increase oil production by half a million barrels, 400,000 barrels, actually, a, um, a month for the next several months. And when the United States asked them to accelerate that and thereby break the agreement, which they had negotiated with all of their OPEC partners, they declined. Uh, that's not usual. They have in the past often been much more accommodating to American uh, interests. So I think it's important to first to understand that there's, a, there's an alliance now or a partnership between Russia and Saudi Arabia. There is all, also a partnership between Saudi Arabia and China. China is Saudi Arabia's largest trading partner and also Aramco's largest customer, both for crude oil and for uh, petrochemicals, which is another major Saudi export. Saudi Arabia has significant investments in China uh, in refining and uh, increasingly in petrochemicals. So this is an economic relationship that uh, is of, of great importance to, to the Saudis. Uh, China is also important to Saudi Arabia in a military sense, uh, Russia less so, but China is the country that has provided Saudi Arabia with ballistic missiles and with the capability or the technology to begin manufacturing those missiles domestically. And both China and Russia also have a strategic um, position in the Middle East, which allows them to influence Iran, which is Saudi Arabia's, if you will, in their mind, their arch enemy, their nemesis, the country that they feel is most threatening to them. Russia sits on the border of Iran, 
has some agreements with them relating to nuclear uh, wastes um, and has occupied parts of Iran in the past. Uh, that's not something that's happened recently, but they, they, they are a neighbor, close neighbor. Um, and China is the country that um, still buys a great deal of um, Iranian oil. And so the Iranians, I think it's fair to say, listen to the Chinese uh, when they say to them, perhaps it wasn't a good idea to have a drone attack on Abcake. Uh, perhaps that might disrupt um, some of our supplies that we get from Saudi Arabia as well. And the United States has very little influence uh, on, on Iran. So I think that uh, there are numerous reasons why the Saudis and the, and the Russians and the Saudis and the Chinese form two legs of this triangle. The third leg is clearly the Chinese-Russian leg. Uh, Mike can talk about that uh, with more expertise than I can. He is, a, he is a certified, he's the only person in the State Department with a native speaking ability in uh, both Arabic and Russian. So I'll let him address Russia more than myself, but I'll only say that um, while Saudi Arabia is the biggest supplier of oil to um, China, Russia is a close second. And that's only increasing. At the Olympics, uh, Putin and Xi announced that they would uh, increase by about 25% natural gas exports from Russia to China and by about 12.5% the oil exports. So those two are closely linked at the hip in terms of energy and also politically because for the first time, the um, Chinese have expressed an opinion on the Ukraine and have expressed that they don't think it would be a good idea to have NATO expand further. Uh, and we'll be interested to see how the Chinese vote on any Security Council resolutions that uh, come up in the next day or so related to Ukraine. So I think it's, um, in closing, I would simply say that Demand for oil is not going away. Um, despite the significant efforts that are being made to promote energy transition in the United States and in Western Europe, manufacturing continues to grow in Asia. China and India uh, are not likely to see net zero for a long time. China's not even going to start. India for, for several decades, as I recall, certainly for another decade. Um, India has said they're not going to start unless you, we pay them, I forget, to some huge sum, billions of dollars uh, in order to help them. And that's, there's an argument there to be made that uh, the West grew wealthy using cheap energy uh, and now, when it's our turn, you want us to stay poor uh, by switching to these less uh, cost-effective means. And they're not terribly interested in that. China, as you probably know, is building more. They actually not building. They built more in 2020. They built more coal-fired power plants than the rest of the world put together. 
So the United States can do all of it, all that it wants to reduce uh, carbon emissions. But if China continues on that path, it's not going to make a great deal of difference. In any event, the point that I'm making is that demand for oil is not going down. There are a lot of people in China and India who still walk. There are plenty who still ride bicycles. And there are plenty who would like to have a car and it won't be a Tesla. So, uh, so we'll leave it at that on terms of demand. In terms of supply, um, the United States um, was moving towards a so-called energy independence. We have sought to reverse that for um, partly the, that was a result of COVID and partly that's a result of government policy, uh, which has placed new restrictions uh, and costs on oil production in the United States. Uh, so this is only going to increase uh, our reliance uh, on foreign exporters like the Saudis. And therefore, I would argue that, um, that we should improve our relationship with the Saudis so that the next time we ask them uh, for some help, we may get a more positive response. And then the final thing that I would mention that is important about this new triangle between Saudi Arabia, China, and uh, Russia is its potential impact on the value of the dollar as a reserve currency. Uh, mm -hmm. The United States obtains a great value from something called seniorage, which is the profit essentially that you get from printing money uh, that costs you a lot less to manufacture than it actually is worth. And as long as the United States remains the reserve currency for the world, we are able to pretty well securely issue more and more government debt to finance our deficits. Uh, a large element in underpinning our role as a reserve currency is the fact that it's used in international trade and particularly in the oil market, which is a vast market. Um, some of the, inter some just, just a parenthetically, but you know, some, the actual amount of oil that is traded, uh, that is produced every day is roughly 100 million barrels. The amount that is actually traded in markets is close to 2 billion. So that's, so in other words, the financial market of tra trading oil is far bigger than the actual physical market. And that's done in dollars. If that ever began to change uh, because the Saudis decided not to denominate their, their uh, trade, their oil trade in, uh, in dollars, that would undermine uh, the American dollar as a reserve currency. So that's something else to bear in mind uh, when we think about why we would want to improve our relations with Saudi Arabia. Uh, so I think with those comments, I will um, turn it over to, to Michael simply to say that um, we should bear in mind that there is a new axis in the oil markets, which is made up of players whose interests are now aligning at the same time that some of those, those countries are seeing their interests diverge from those of the United States. Okay, thank you, David. That was a masterful overview uh, and allocated uh, uh, time slot. And we turn now to Michael Gofello as a follow-on for his own uh, range of information. 
and insight and analysis and sharing knowledge and understanding that for many is hard to come by. Ambassador Cafella. Thank you, uh, Dr. Anthony. I appreciate the opportunity uh, to follow David's uh, brilliant presentation. David and I were colleagues for many years in Saudi Arabia, and um, you know it's always a pleasure to uh, interact with him again on an intellectual level. Um, easily one of the most brilliant people I've ever met. So um, let's talk about this uh, trilateral access that um, has formed. I think it goes beyond the oil markets, although it's very important within the context of the oil markets. Uh, Saudi Arabia has a lot to offer. Um, Russia, its leading role in the world of Islam is important to Russia. Um, the uh, second largest religion in the Russian Federation is, of course, Islam. Uh, aside from Tatarstan, there are uh, other large um, uh, ethnic minorities in Russia that um, uh, profess Islam. And of course, Russia, from our point of view in the United States, um, Islam is part of the world of the East. We look eastward toward Mecca, we look eastward toward Arabia. From the Russian point of view, um, Islam is um, their southern border. Um, they border on the Central Asian countries, they border on the Middle East. They are a geographical participant in the Middle East in a way that we often don't think about. We tend to think of Russia as an Eastern Europe, European country, but it's much more uh, geographically speaking involved with the Islamic world and the Middle East as part of the Islamic world than we often realize. So, you know, the transformation of Russia in the last 30 years from a communist dictatorship to a uh, quasi-democracy with a semi-free economy uh, and, and a, uh, you know, uh, a country that certainly abjures its um, uh, communist past uh, has been really important in terms of the ability of Saudi Arabia and other Islamic countries to engage with Russia. Um, when Russia was an officially communist country, um, the, uh, the Saudis essentially had no dealings with Moscow. Uh, now that Russia is a secular slash Christian uh, uh, Jewish and Muslim country. Um, of course, the Saudis have relations, very close relations. Um, MBS, Mohammed bin Salman's uh, diplomacy uh, with um, uh, Deputy um, um, Prime Minister Novikov in negotiating the Saudi-Russian Energy uh, Partnership was, was actually a brilliant uh, example of Saudi diplomacy, as David has outlined. Um, what attracted the Saudis and the Russians together is that each of them uh, has a, an energy economy in which the government plays a key role. So the rate, they can talk to each other about production and pricing in a way they can't talk to the United States. We have a private sector economy, a private sector energy sector. Um, and so we have thousands of producers, literally large and small, that collectively determine our output and influence the price. The United States government doesn't um, set energy prices and, and can't really. Um, this is not true of Russia. This is not true of Saudi Arabia. And so, um, in a situation in which um, Saudi Arabia, United States, and Russia are each um, equally capable of producing about 12 million barrels a day, we have a situation in which a quarter of uh, global daily oil production is under the control of the Russian and the Saudi governments. And the main point, of course, of OPEC Plus was to allow Russia, uh, together with um, Saudi Arabia, to exert a decisive influence on oil production and pricing. And that's worked very well over the last um, six years, ever since September 2016, when they initiated the uh, original OPEC plus agreement. Uh, negotiations have been difficult from time to time, but certainly during the COVID era, uh, you know, the OPEC plus was of vital importance to both uh, Russia's economic security and survival and Saudi Arabia's. So this is one of the strongest legs uh, of the, the new trilateral arrangement. 
I think another issue we should pay attention to is the extent to which uh, since the um, Khashoggi incident, um, you know, American elites have distanced themselves uh, from uh, Saudi Arabia. The Crown Prince has uh, still not been invited uh, uh, by the current administration to Washington. Um, Russian and Saudi diplomacy, on the other hand, have been very, very active. Uh, Defense Minister Shoigu uh, was in uh, last fall in, in Riyadh to offer uh, a broad range of Russian defense services and products to the Saudis. They're looking at that carefully. The Saudis already are benefiting from Russia's expertise in manufacturing both drones and anti-drone uh, strategies and technology. That's extremely important. Russia and Saudi Arabia uh, essentially compete uh, for the position of primary oil, oil supplier to China. Each supplies 17 to 18% of China's um, daily oil consumption or imports rather. Um, the Russians uh, during the recent Olympic games negotiated an agreement uh, with the Chinese to boost their exports by 200,000 barrels a day. If that holds, and this is a 10 year agreement uh, with um, conservative pricing. So it's of great strategic importance to the, the Chinese as oil prices this morning go up above $105 a barrel. So um, very important agreement. Uh, that may give the Russians a slight edge over the Saudis this year in terms of their access to the Chinese energy market. Last year, the uh, uh, Saudis were exporting about 1.7 million barrels a day. This year, the Russians will probably do 1.8. So you can see how this is working out. So um, in a real sense, um, Russia and uh, Saudi Arabia are competing for the Chinese market, but they're jointly helping to fuel China's continued prosperity and economic rise, which makes them of great importance. Now, the war in Ukraine will, of course, only increase uh, Russia's need to sell energy uh, to, uh, to China as Western markets are, are close to it. There's a limit to how much that can happen. When you look at the Russians' biggest customer in Europe, which is Germany, the Germans get a third of their oil, half their natural gas, and half their coal from Russia. So I think there are limits to the degree to which we can really sanction the Russian energy sector. Nevertheless, there will be harsh sanctions imposed on Russia for the invasion of Ukraine, which began uh, late last night, U.S. time, uh, early Thursday morning, Russian time. Um, and uh, this will, of course, push them closer and closer to the Chinese economically. In this context, I can only repeat the warnings that Dr. Henry Kissinger, uh, a former professional associate of mine, I used to work with Kissinger Associates for, uh, for several years, used to make all the time in my hearing, he would say, the greatest strategic disaster that could befall the United States and the collective West would be for Eurasia to be united in an anti-American bloc under the leadership of Russia and China. But this is exactly what's happening right now. Yep. And Saudi Arabia as a crucial component uh, is being added, uh, in, 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 crucial in terms of energy security for this new bloc. We need to be very careful about this. Uh, the whole point behind Richard Nixon's uh, trip to China decades ago was to precisely to split the Soviet Union and China, prevent this type of alignment, which was viewed back then in the 70s as potentially lethal to the US and American interests. But right now our policy uh, willy-nilly seems to be pushing Russia in that direction. And I think we need to consider uh, carefully whether this is really what we want to happen. Um, this is a bigger question even than the fate of, of Ukraine. I'd like to address the Ukraine crisis for a second as well because it has a direct bearing on the trilateral alliance that we're, we're talking about, the Saudi, Russian, and Chinese alliance. Um, in Western commentary, one often hears, you know, in a commentary written in English or German or French that um, Putin's intervention in Ukraine is, is economically foolish, will only impose costs on him. 
I question that. I really do. Um, uh, it seems to me that if Putin succeeds with his apparent war aim of dominating southern and eastern Ukraine while leaving the West as a sort of rump Ukrainian state for NATO and the EU to take care of, he'll end up uh, acquiring two important economic assets, important in the medium and long term. One of them, of course, is um, you know the Chernozem, the black soil regions of Ukraine. Ukraine right now is the fifth largest grain um, producer and exporter in the world, um, and, um, and Russia is um, the largest. So the largest food producer in the world is going to conquer the fifth largest. What will that mean in practical terms? It'll mean that Russia plus Ukraine as a single economic entity will control 25% of the global grain supply. This matters for Middle Eastern countries like Egypt and for Turkey. Turkey imports about 70% of its grain from Russia and Ukraine right now. Uh, soon, if Putin succeeds, he'll be in control of that entire trade rather than um, you know, having to compete with the Ukrainians for market share. Um, Russia and Ukraine together uh, account for almost all of Egypt's wheat imports. Russia is by far the larger supplier, but if Putin succeeds in conquering uh, the farmlands of eastern Ukraine, then he'll be in control of all of it. And this is a big deal. I mean, uh, these are concrete economic resources we're talking about, not, um, uh, you know, will-o'-wisp, um, uh, uh, you know, rapidly changing financial flows, as important as they are. And then there's the whole question of the natural gas export pipeline network that was built during Soviet times and crosses um, uh, all of Ukraine from east to west. Um, Military success in Ukraine will probably give Putin control of this network as well. In the short run, the, uh, the halt of gas exports to that pipeline network, of course, will drive up both uh, natural gas and oil prices. As I noted um, on the news of the invasion, oil jumped to $105 a barrel this morning. I don't think that's the ceiling. So clearly these uh, trends have big implications for the Middle East uh, and therefore for the trilateral axis that, that we've been discussing. Um, and then there's, of course, the um, military and security dimension of the axis. David touched on that, but I think it's important to know that Saudi Arabia is increasingly concerned by the Vienna uh, negotiations over the renewed JCPOA, the so-called JCPOA 2.0, um, which are not going in a, in a direction that you know, the Saudis find pleasing, uh, to put it mildly. So it's really not surprising that they've reached out to another member of this trilateral axis, China, uh, for ballistic missile technology. Dave and I were both in Saudi Arabia in the early 1980s when the Saudis uh, began to import um, ballistic missile technology from China. Now the Chinese have created a ballistic missile factory uh, in Saudi Arabia outside of Riyadh. And so this partnership is, is, is increasing. At the same time that they're trying to deal with the drone threat from Iran mediated through um, Houthi-controlled Northern Yemen by importing Russian um, drone technology. So there's a trend line here in which Saudi Arabia, which feels that its security concerns are not being fully uh, respected by their, its Western partners, is turning for critical military technology uh, to Beijing and to Moscow. And that is something that ought to concern us. People often say that um, Saudi Arabia is too dependent on Western, particularly American military technology, to shift to another patron. But I think we need to be careful about making uh, such assumptions. They, they, they might lull us into a false sense of security. The fact of the matter is that the prestige of the US military and therefore of US military products and services has fallen a great deal in the region since our withdrawal from Afghanistan. Um, the prestige of Russia in particular military technology is, and, and military ability in general is increasing because of their success in Syria 
and backing uh, the Usa regime. And I, if Putin succeeds in conquering Eastern and Southern Ukraine, that will add even more to the prestige of, of Russian arms um, al along the whole technological spectrum from AK-47s to SU-24 fighters. So we, we need to be watching this space. This trilateral axis is a reality. Um, it isn't done developing yet. Um, and as David alluded, it could really um, threaten US interests at a certain point, so we need to keep our eye on it. Um, and I would finally, as a final point, I would add that, um, I don't wanna take up too much time here, but I think I would add that the threat to the pr primacy of the dollar, as David alluded to, is, uh, is quite real. The Russians make no secret at all about their, uh, their eagerness to develop alternatives to the dollar. Of course, their main reason is to avoid the impact of US economic sanctions, which are all based on the primacy of the dollar. But now we have this strong alliance based on energy trade um, and uh, common security interests to a large degree. And um, will it be possible for the uh, Chinese, the Saudis and the Russians to work out a payment system uh, for um, energy trade that doesn't involve the dollar? I would think it is possible in principle, especially if, we, uh, if they decide to um, import uh, rather uh, adopt uh, aspects of blockchain technology to make that happen. Um, and I would also propose that our, our frequent use of financial sanctions involving the dollar in recent decades has given the Chinese, the Russians, and even the Saudis uh, an incentive to uh, explore these options. Thank you. Michael, that was a fantastic follow-on to David's uh, overview and, and introductory remarks. <clears throat> we have 20 minutes here for uh, questions and, uh, and discussion. And because the questions uh, outnumber the uh, amount of time that could uh, professionally and effectively be allocated uh, to the one or the other or the two of you. Uh, what I'm going to do is I'm going to uh, pose various questions and you pick and choose which ones you think are the more timely, the more relevant, uh, the more linked uh, to misinformation, disinformation uh, with your permission. Uh, I'll read some of them out and then I'll come back and, uh, and ask you uh, while you're thinking of a response of the ones that you would like to take. Um, and you'll have ample time to let the adrenaline uh, pump in your minds as to what would be an appropriate or an effective response from your, your perspective. No one is, another of you has mentioned the so-called one belt, one road strategic gambit initiative uh, campaign uh, of China. Uh, which is bold, which is ambitious, which is geopolitically um, expansionist. Uh, what are the implications uh, of this? And uh, how can one assess uh, whether this is altogether a threat, a challenge to the United States or something that the United States might, might benefit from or have its own alternative uh, uh, approach? Another one is, <clears throat> Coming down the road <clears throat> with uh, Russia increasing its uh, linkages, its ties to Iran, and uh, even a proposal by one of the GCC countries of a tunnel that would go underground, linking uh, uh, southern Iran uh, to eastern Arabia and vice versa. This is a, a more fast-breaking news. This is a speedy, uh, immediate uh, news. The implications of that. Uh, the feasibility of that, the reality of, of that. Um, another one would be uh, how 
Valid Harold Lyant, uh, Hat Tomley, how uh, useful, how mutually beneficial is one likely to see the ongoing defense component and the United States relationship with uh, Saudi Arabia. You made reference, uh, David, and you too, by implication, uh, Michael, <clears throat> to the uh, Iran-based drone attack uh, to the nerve center of the world's uh, nerve center in the eastern province of Saudi Arabia, where the United States uh, had no effective uh, military response. Uh, this was a first. And in the 80-year relationship between the United States and Saudi Arabia, at no point uh, would a Saudi Arabian defense specialist have imagined or fantasized that the Saudi Arabian nerve center would be attacked and the United States would do nothing other than rhetorically condemn the attack, but do nothing to punish uh, the attacker, namely Iran. And, uh, another one has to do with how uh, valid and how viable is the element of trust. Trust can be everything between the United States and Saudi Arabia. Remember after 9-11, <clears throat> there was almost a near cancellation of Saudi Arabians being allowed entry into the United States with the ease that had been the case for decades upon decades uh, before. You have around 500,000 by some estimates, uh, Saudi Arabian graduates of American institutions of higher educations. And many <clears throat> Saudi Arabians uh, take their families on their vacation back to where they went to school, where mama and where papa uh, uh, obtained their, their higher education. Uh, all of this has created a kind of visceral, subjective, uh, pro-American bias by Saudi Ravens who are grateful for the impact of the United States on their formative uh, years of becoming educated and prepared to be leaders in that country. Is this likely to be, to use your word, David, dissipated or vitiated? Uh, we had a crossroads there as well. I remember speaking to uh, the president of uh, Saudi Aramco about the implications of this. And he, he said, John Duke, you've already lost 4,000 of us that we've been sending <clears throat> as students to Japan, to Korea, and to China, uh, while you've been looking the other way uh, because of the visceral reaction in the United States against Arabs, against Muslims, the so-called Arabophobia, Islamophobia, uh, trickled down to just several thousand. But then like a, a, a carnival uh, Ferris wheel, uh, downs and ups in a marriage and a relationship. And they, uh, we bounce back, Saudi Arabia bounced back. We bounced back together where more than 100,000 Saudi Arabians, if you include the dependents, uh, uh, came again to the United States for their higher education in pursuit of, it, of advancement there. And then uh, perhaps you, David, on uh, intellectual property rights and that uh, Saudi Arabia does not get the Olympic uh, gold medal or standard for uh, respecting international property uh, rights to the degree that the United States uh, private sector would want, would insist, would emphasize, has to be the case uh, for the element of trust to deepen, uh, to heighten. Uh, to, to, to broaden as such there. Uh, 
the uh, last few questions here have to do uh, with the um, security risk that you see uh, coming to the United States. Um, there are those who see China as a threat. Uh, and one can say, yes, it is at the global level uh, compared to where things have been. But uh, does any country in Arabia and the Gulf really see China at the moment or even on the horizon as a threat? A serious concept there versus an, an, an ascendant geopolitical player where they're more aligned on their thinking, on their analysis, on their strategic assessment of the opportunities and in, in, uh, issues. Uh, and then lastly, human rights. Uh, the Biden administration has indicated that it will make its foreign relations with any countries linked uh, to uh, countries record in the realm of human rights. Uh, this is intrusive in any event. So this is um, uh, the basket full of questions put to you. Choose any of them. They're all relevant. They're all timely. They all need an informed assessment and analysis. Either of you can go first. Well, if I could um, go first, I'd like to address the uh, elephant in the room, which really is the last question that you raised. And that is the question of human rights, and that is directly related to the assassination of Jamal Khashoggi. Mm -hmm. And I think that it is important that any diplomat or any administration seeks to balance a country's, and that is to say the United States, our values and our interests. And I've said before that if you abandon your values, you have nothing to defend. But if you abandon your interests, you have no way to defend your values. So when it comes to Saudi Arabia, we have both values and interests to defend and that a total focus on one or the other uh, is, is short-sighted and going to be counterproductive. So I would argue that the Iranians, for example, who are, we are now bending over backwards to develop a better relationship with, routinely assassinate people, dissidents overseas. Okay, that doesn't really seem to get a great deal of coverage but it happens, and a good deal of it happens in Turkey. Uh, the Saudis, on the other hand, are making profound social changes in their country. Uh, the role of women, we could talk about that for quite a, quite a long time, uh, has changed dramatically, uh, not just in terms of driving, but in terms of work, in terms of the social things that they're allowed to do, the end of the guardianship rules, the mixing in restaurants, uh, the educational opportunities, many things have changed. And when you think about that in relationship to what's happening in Afghanistan, a country where we spent billions of dollars and thousands of lives, and they're now going the other way, where Saudi Arabia, we didn't spend any money, uh, and we certainly haven't had any Americans killed there for some time, uh, they're going in the right direction. So I would argue that on the looking at this as a whole, um, we should put the assassination of Jamal Khashoggi and the jailing of 
dissidents, of which there are relatively few, uh, in perspective. And I don't mean to sound like an apologist. I'm sure there are people who will say that that's a very apologist thing for, to say about the Saudis. But when you look at the changes that Mohammed bin Salman has made, he has, in fact, had to, if you will, he has had, he has arrested dissidents on both the left and the right. And it must make for an interesting conversation in the prison cafeteria, but he has put radicals on the left or dissidents of the left and right in prison because the changes he's making, he's enforcing and uh, pushing. So uh, that's a long answer to the question about human rights. Um, I think there are a lot of countries in the world that we have good relationship with, with that have far worse uh, human rights records in Saudi Arabia, and that rather than penalize them and make them a pariah, we ought to try and encourage them to make to continue the, many of the changes that they are, in fact, already making. Uh, that's my one answer, and I'll just quickly, one more, and then I'll let Michael chat because there's quite a few questions. But basically, I think the person who raised the issue of the Belt and Road was absolutely right. That's important. China is expanding. We should have talked about that. China has a military base, a naval base in Djibouti at the mouth of the Red Sea. Uh, China is expanding, uh, they're building a big port in the Pakistan. So they're becoming a lot closer uh, physically than they were in the past. And quite frankly, so is Russia, because Russia now for, you know, for many years after the Cold War was not really a player in the Middle East. They're now back uh, there in Syria, they're in Libya. So yeah, I think those are, that's another aspect, the physical presence of both of those in the Middle East, both those two countries. Michael. So uh, building off what David just said, his last remark, Russia too is much more present in the region, um, uh, just as China, the Chinese have the base on the mouth of the Red Sea. The Russians on the other hand have for the first time uh, in their history, a, a solid hold on a major warm water port on the Mediterranean. And thanks to their control of the Black Sea, control which will only be increased if Putin succeeds in taking all of Ukraine's Black Sea coastline, which he seems to be doing. Uh, this morning there were landings uh, reported at both Mariupol on the eastern side of the co uh, Ukraine's uh, Black Sea coast and at Odessa on the western side. It looks like that, that's what he's going for. He's already got the central salient in Crimea knocked down, uh, nailed down. Um, the Black Sea will become a, essentially a maritime highway for Russia to connect to its warm water port in the Eastern Mediterranean on the Syrian coast. Syria uh, is seen in, in much of the Arab world now, certainly in the Gulf as something of a Russian client state. Uh, the Russian role there is more important than the Iranian role. The Russians have handled the Iranians in a masterful way, allowing them to provide pretty much cost-free benefits uh, to Russia as it subjugated Syria. Syria is now a client state. Uh, and that, I think, underlines a really important point we need to understand about Russia and its neo-imperial strategy in general. They're not trying to recreate the Soviet Union. Putin was a KGB agent. He understands the internal flaws of the Soviet Union very well. In his uh, several speeches over recent days, he's referred to them in great detail. So for connoisseurs of Russian history, it's actually kind of fascinating to hear a former KGB agent and the current president uh, discuss uh, in such, with such frankness uh, the flaws that brought the Soviet Union down. He's trying to create a new Russian empire. Uh, this empire will be designed very differently from the old Soviet empire or the old Russian empire. Uh, it's um, uh, very much a different uh, construction. We could talk for hours about it, but um, certainly he's back in the, Middle East, in the Middle East in a way he wasn't before uh, with his domination of, um, 
uh, both the Black Sea and his presence in the Eastern Mediterranean. Turning quickly to the other elephant in the room, the um, uh, imminent uh, completion of the nuclear negotiations in Vienna. If the talks, as seems likely, um, produce an agreement that the Saudis think essentially opens the way for Iran to emerge as a nuclear weapons state, and that's clearly their worry, the near future will hold uh, a major episode of nuclear proliferation uh, in the Middle East, beginning in the Gulf, possibly also including Turkey. Turkey, Saudi Arabia, and the UAE have all the technological ability they need to build uh, and field um, ballistic missile systems and to build and maintain uh, modest arsenals of nuclear weapons. Uh, the technology is out there. Uh, the basic understanding of what it takes to build a nuclear bomb is rather widespread. Uh, the Iranian enrichment technology is, is somewhat challenging, but not beyond the technical capabilities of any of these countries. And then there's the role of Pakistan, whose own nuclear weapons program was largely funded by the Saudis. So I think we, we need to understand that um, if we actually uh, help to bring about a, a new nuclear agreement with Iran, the JCPOA 2.0, if it doesn't meet the security interests of our, of our uh, Gulf partners uh, and the Turks, I think we're looking at a new round of nuclear proliferation, which will really dramatically change uh, the balance of power in the region, no question about it, and lead to a very unstable uh, uh, correlation of forces in the Gulf. Mm. Thank you, Michael. Well, um, the I'll make one, I'll talk on one last, I'll just quickly, what else should I turn to? Um, right. Yeah, there was one very quick one. And the others we could talk about for a long time, but the question of trust, I think someone asked an interesting question about trust. No, the Saudis don't trust us. They haven't trusted us for a long time. Uh, they know very well how we dealt with the Shah, how we dealt with Mubarak. Um, as long as their interests and ours align, they will stay with us. Uh, there's, there is a, as Dr. Anthony pointed out, there is a very deep visceral um, affection between many Saudis and the United States, but that's not something you're going to build your foreign policy on. And as Dr. Anthony said, it is something that is fading, again, in part for our own fault, um, because we made it difficult for a long time for Saudis to come to the United States because of uh, visa issues and because they have developed alternative places that they would like to go to school. So uh, that is a fading. Uh, it's not going away, but it is less pronounced than it once was. But in terms of question of trust, um, you know, it's, it's rather like Ronald Reagan said, trust and verify. So I think that they trust us as long as they can verify. To other of you, um, or both, <clears throat> the uh, implications for the US uh, defense and aerospace industries uh, whereby a, a device manufactured in the few thousands of dollars <clears throat> was able to evade uh, the most advanced system of defense and deterrence uh, with regard to Patriot missiles and anti-ballistic uh, missiles, uh, that it didn't work. Now, put ourselves or yourselves in the shoes of one of the Fortune 100 companies uh, that markets uh, defense and uh, aerospace equipment, technology, uh, devices, services, maintenance, follow on. Uh, your credibility has been vitiated in the eyes of some. What are the, uh, you can take that premise and challenge it, if you will, acknowledge it, if you will, and be aware and appreciative of it, if, if you will, or, or knock it down. 
and uh, indicate uh, what are the implications because this is an American industry that employs millions of uh, American uh, citizens uh, and follow on uh, capacities as well as directly. I'll be very quick because Mike, I want Mike to answer that, but all I would say very quickly in two sentences is that the balance between offense and defense is always changing and this drone is a new technology. We will develop something to counter it. But in the meantime, the effective technologies that you're talking about are still necessary. If you didn't have those, they wouldn't need drones. They would uh, they would attack you with airplanes and other <clears throat> and other larger missiles. And so those systems are still valuable. Uh, it's just that there is now a new offensive weapon that you need to think about how to counter. But I'll leave it to Mike to talk about that. He's far more knowledgeable than I am about military matters. So I mean, we have to recognize and respect the Iranians' um, uh, tremendous skill at using um, uh, asymmetric warfare in all its forms and. The development of these drones launched from Houthi controlled Yemen and elsewhere uh, is a classic example of that. As Dr. Anthony accurately pointed out, uh, they don't cost much. Um, they're much cheaper than a Patriot missile system or a Patriot missile uh, for that matter, and certainly much cheaper than a fighter aircraft. And yet um, there is really no effective um, defense yet um, against uh, drone attacks, except for the recently developed Russian Pantsir system, which they developed largely to protect their air base in Syria against drone attacks there, launched by insurgent forces. It's a pretty effective system. It uses both electromagnetic pulse technology, which we're experimenting with in this country, and uh, a kinetic approach uh, in advanced radars to take down drone targets. Uh, I don't believe the Russians are, are, are trying to export that system yet. Um, but we in the United States have a lot of catch-up ball to play in terms of working on drone defense. We've been very good at developing both ISR um, and, uh, and attack drones, not so good at developing drone defenses. Uh, we were thinking only about, you know, the, uh, the aggressive use of drones and not defensive uh, measures, and we need to play catch up all of that. Until we do, uh, the Saudis will have to go to Moscow if they want effective uh, defense against drone attacks. And uh, until that happens, uh, of course, already cooperating with the Russian, Russians in the, in the drone area. But until they can um, take effective measures, then uh, as the recent attack on Adnoc showed in, in Abu Dhabi, uh, the Gulf oil industry is hideously uh, vulnerable to Iranian drone attacks. The fear, returning to the JCPOA for a second, is that once Iran's hands are untied to a large extent by a new agreement, uh, perhaps by the subsequent development of nuclear weapons on the part of the Iranians, then uh, sub-nuclear attacks, such as drone attacks, will become more frequent uh, because Iran will be able to um, secure itself behind its, its own nuclear shield. So um, this is the kind of world we're looking at. And this is why uh, there will be intensive work on anti-drone technology in the near future. There has to be. Uh, re related to this, we have a question from uh, Dr. Rob Renfro, <clears throat> uh, Air Force uh, Technology, uh, a former participant, <clears throat> one of the National Council's uh, leadership development delegations uh, to the to the Arab region. And he's also been an outstanding uh, graduate of the National Council's Youth Leadership Development Program, otherwise known as the Model Arab League. We have 50,000 graduates of that program. He's one of the most stellar of the lot. And he wonders about the impact potential or otherwise 
uh, of the situation in Ukraine and what the United States uh, will be doing or not doing uh, to help the Ukrainians um, with regard to foreign military sales uh, to Saudi Arabia. Uh, we're talking about hundreds of billions of dollars hanging in the balance there. Uh, how would one uh, best perceive and analyze the implications of that from, from Dr. Renfro? Uh, I'll let that question stand on its own and then we'll come back to others. And we're going to go to 1115. The number of questions are so numerous and so varied and so relevant and rich that uh, uh, the subject matter itself deserves this extension. Uh, who would like to go first on that last one? Go ahead, Michael. That deals with political military matters. Right. Um, well, in terms of um, military assistance to, um, to Ukraine, um, I think the war that began this morning will be relatively quick if the Russians get their way. And so this may become an academic issue uh, within the next six weeks uh, to um, two months. I think the Russian strategy is clearly a blitzkrieg strategy. Uh, last night, they talked, attacked on a very broad front, all the way from the Belarusian border uh, down to Kharkiv in the east and down to Odessa in, 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 the, in the south. So I would expect, um, I would expect that, um, you know, um, the facts on the ground there will change very, very rapidly. Uh, Russian forces vastly outnumber and outpower, overmatch uh, the Ukrainian forces. Ukrainian forces seem to be uh, fighting rather staunchly, but um, I don't think they're going to be able to win this confrontation. And Putin has uh, issued very blunt threats in uh, his speech last night, uh, declaring war uh, on Ukraine, essentially. He, he warned foreign powers, whom he did not name uh, by name, uh, that um, if they were to interfere in this conflict, he would impose costs and consequences on them uh, that they cannot imagine and that they have never experienced in the past. So that's a clear um, reference, uh, in my opinion, to uh, you know, implicit threat uh, to impose strategic uh, consequences on foreign powers that interfere in what he's hoping will be a, a quick war uh, to dominate Eastern and Southern Ukraine. Um, I think if he wins, um, and he probably will, then the attractiveness of Russian military exports for countries in the Middle East will increase. There's already a great deal of interest in Russian aircraft, uh, you know, the SU variety in particular, uh, bombers and fighters, uh, because of his success in defending the Assad regime in Syria. A quick victory in Ukraine in what is the largest military conflict in Europe since World War II will increase his prestige. Uh, and by, uh, by comparison, you know, uh, NATO's um, inability to defend Ukraine um, and our recent disastrous withdrawal, withdrawal from Afghanistan will, will cast us in a negative light. So I think, um, you know, we're not gonna lose our defense markets in the Gulf. They're too closely tied to American technology, but uh, the Russians will be very uh, attractive after this is all over. I should mention as well that the city of Kharkiv in Eastern Ukraine, which I visited uh, many years ago, when it was a center of um, the Soviet defense industry, it's only 20 miles from the border with Russia. Uh, Russian troops crossed the border last night and are now heading to Kharkiv. If they capture Kharkiv, they'll uh, capture um, the heart of the Ukrainian defense industry. And as we all know, Ukraine, Ukraine has been a major arms exporter to a number of Middle Eastern countries um, over the years. Um, and um, its um, productive capacity will now be added to um, the Russian uh, defense machine. So um, that's what I see happening in the near term. Well, thank you for that. Timely is, is, is possible. 
and immediately relevant as well. Uh, food for thought, thought for food there. Um, we're, uh, we're all three of us, old enough or young enough, some days it's hard to um, determine which is the more valid uh, uh, reality than, than the other. Um, but uh, what uh, does one say to those who will point out that what uh, uh, Russia has done to Ukraine is uh, a carbon copy, uh, not that distant echo of what Saddam Hussein's Iraq did to Kuwait in, uh, on August the 2nd, 1990. And secondly, uh, the sort of moralistic or idealistic or altruistic um, uh, Achilles heel for China with regard to its treatment of the Uyghurs, the Islamic uh, population of China in the far Western reaches of the country. Um, we have this problem, did we not ourselves, where we're seen as hypocritical, where we're seen as having double standards, uh, where we're seen as not saying always what we mean and for sure not meaning always what we say. Who would like to tackle that and link it to there being no American ambassador in Riyadh, the implications of that in comparison with what the Chinese on one hand and the Russians on the other are doing with regard to these interlinked issues. Either, either of you. Well, there's really, there are three questions there. Yes. If I heard it correctly. And I think that the question about there being no ambassador is a significant one. It no doubt reflects priorities in the Senate, uh, probably, and I don't know this, but probably confirming judges is more important than confirming sat ambassadors. And so they're using their time in that way. But um, it does send a signal that um, the United States is not terribly interested in uh, its relationship with Saudi Arabia. That's a statement that has been amplified repeatedly. There are people in the administration who have said that Mohammed bin Salman is a killer. They've said that Saudi Arabia is a pariah state. So you ask, do they trust us? Well, it's sort of, I think, questionable. Now, it, these things are often said in political contexts, and the Saudis are not naive. They understand what people say on a campaign speech is often, as you pointed out, you may not necessarily mean what you say. And there certainly has been a continuation of arms sales uh, to Saudi Arabia. But, and I, th I think that there's increasingly a recognition that some of the rhetoric, some of the anti-Saudi rhetoric needs to be toned down. Um, this is the question now of whether they're going to, and they may have done it already, I don't know, I haven't seen lately, but the question of how you're going to regard the Houthis, yes. uh, who the Saudis consider to be, you know, um, an enemy uh, and who have attacked them numerous times. Um, of course, they've attacked the Houthis as well. So I'm not saying that, and I'm not taking sides in their fight, but the Saudis feel that they're being attacked and they need support. And, I, and the point I'm making is that so far we have supported them to some extent, not perhaps as much as they would want. So um, I think the, the answer to your question, the fact that there is no ambassador, 
uh, is simply one more uh, factor that they look at when they see a stated policy of getting out of the Middle East and focusing on Asia, which is something that numerous administrations have said. So they, they, they think those are issues that they um, that affect the way that they look at their relationship with the United States, which is perhaps fading or at least becoming less important than the emerging relationships with China and uh, Russia. And then I'll let Mike answer the next one, which uh, we probably forgot what it was. No, uh, the, the Uyghurs. No, the Uyghurs. Yeah. Uh, with Kuwait. Well, the Uyghur issue has, has been studiously ignored, really, by Saudi Arabia to a very large extent because, you know, going back to the, our main subject of this uh, new triple alliance, uh, it's a very pragmatic alliance. It's, it's based on the Saudi need for stable export markets, uh, Chinese need for um, stable access to energy resources, uh, the Saudi-Russian competition to supply the energy needed to fuel China's rise, and Riyadh's need for alternatives to the U.S. in terms of certain defense technologies. So these pragmatic, um, you know, very unromantic, very, you know, brass tax interests uh, at this point are certainly um, outweighing the human rights issues posed by the Chinese oppression of the Uyghurs. Um, the Saudis tend to view it uh, to the extent that they talk about it at all as a counterterrorism measure on the part of the Chinese. And of course, given their own problems uh, with Al-Qaeda, uh, at the you know, at the beginning of this century, which David and I are very familiar with, having been there at the time and assisting the Saudis in terms of security assistance at the time against Al Qaeda, even their own history uh, uh, problems with terrorist organizations, they they tend to be looking at it through that lens rather than a human rights lens. Uh, I'll just add one thing, and I think this is pretty much the last comment uh, from me. Um, the United States, and this goes back to my comment on human rights, the United States has placed a very high premium on our ideals and our ideology and, and exporting, if you will, almost in a missionary sense, our values, which include not only human rights, but gay rights, women rights, trans rights, all sorts of things, which are perhaps uh, not welcome in some Arab countries. Um, whether, they're, whether that's good or bad, it's simply a fact. Um, the whole essence of this conversation is to point out that the unipolar world that existed with the fall of the Soviet Union, with the collapse of the Soviet Union, the replacement of a bipolar world with a unipolar world where we had no peer competitors, where we could pretty well write our own playbook and ignore realpolitik, that is coming to an end. Uh, peer competitors are emerging, new accesses of oil, energy are emerging. And we're going to have to balance, as I said earlier, our interests with our values, perhaps in a slightly different way than we've done it before, or at least for the last couple of decades. As a, a follow-on to this, David and Michael, <clears throat> Iran, a, a bit more elaboration on that, please. Uh, China has uh, the, the, gone beyond conviction at the level of commitment of $400 billion for uh, promised infrastructure assistance uh, to Iran. 
Um, how is the United States likely to finesse this? How are Saudi Arabia and the GCC countries in East Arabia likely uh, to finesse uh, this, this growing linkage between uh, Iran and China, the ongoing linkages between Russia and uh, Iran, and the uh, dream still of Peter the Great and Catherine the Great of a warm water port, uh, the ideal one being in Iran, uh, with greater access to Iran's 19 ports uh, in the Gulf from uh, the western border of uh, Pakistan all the way up to the eastern border of uh, Iraq. Uh, this is almost a dream come true, but it's a dream in a theater coming to a, a picture show near you. Uh, how is one likely to finesse this, manage it, or just analyze and assess its implications, uh, which on the surface appear to be wearisome? Either well, one. Uh, I'll just jump in quickly and say, I think there's gonna be a strategically very important competition between uh, Russian and, uh, and Chinese uh, economic interests um, in Iran. The Russians are already um, uh, speaking volumes about their interest in coming in and using their expertise in the oil industry, which is vast, uh, to rebuild Iran's oil industry. The Iranians need to boost production for the domestic market and exports uh, as rapidly as they can. And Russians are happy uh, through Rosneft, Lukoil, and their other big companies to come in and uh, lend a hand there. The Chinese, of course, will be competing to do the same thing. The Chinese has a, have a, a much larger bank account, as it were, far more capital than they can invest uh, the Russians have a lead in terms of oil technology. Um, the Russians, of course, uh, have had a strong defense relationship with Iran for years. Um, they'll try to build on that. Uh, they'll look at Iran as a, as a market for advanced Russian weapon systems. There they'll have the leg up over the Chinese. And the Chinese will be trying to expand the Belt and Road Initiative to include Iran as a, as a key link in the chain on the Persian Gulf because of those 19 ports. But what they might be missing uh, is the fact that Iran sees itself not as a client state of either Russia or China. It intends to uh, play both off against each other and against the EU. U.S. companies will be largely excluded uh, from uh, this game, uh, of course, because of our history over the last 40 years with, um, with Iran. Um, but um, the key thing to remember here is that Iran sees itself as an empire, an empire that unjustly has lost many of its provinces. Iran sees its rightful sphere of influence as extending from Herat in Western Afghanistan to the Mediterranean. Uh, and Iran will be using, and enter the Arabian Peninsula, Persian Gulf, of course. And so Iran will be using this new income it hopes to gain after the signing of the JCPOA. Um, it'll be investing this money in, in expanding its strategic presence and capabilities to build up this uh, its own neo-imperial structure. And that means that it'll inevitably bump up against uh, the rising Chinese uh, and Russian uh, neo-empires as well. So th there's going to be a kind of a great block to uh, tectonic shifts, if you will, uh, between the Chinese, the Russian, and the Iranian spheres of influence. David, you want to add to that? Nope. I'm, I made my last comment. I think the switch of, uh, from a bipolar world to a unipolar world to mm -hmm. a multipolar world is what's going to drive the changes in the Gulf. And to, just to quickly state that what the Saudis, Mike was exactly right. The Saudis, you would think, 
as the champions of Muslims around the world would be saying something about the Uyghurs, but they are not. Yes. Because they're being pra pragmatic and they understand who is their biggest customer and they're being practical. Yes. Anyway. I'll build a little on that. Uh, previously, having been uh, a member of the uh, sanctions uh, subcommittee of the Secretary of State's International Economic um, Policy Advisors. And when the uh, JCPOA came into existence, uh, there was euphoria, especially among EU countries, that they could see uh, this market uh, um, uh, enhancing uh, the export uh, economies of the EU countries. Um, and also looking at Iran from a customer perspective, that on the population front of the uh, eight uh, countries in the Gulf, seven Arabs, well, one Iranian, uh, Iran's population and its customer base is greater than all the seven Arab uh, countries combined. So you can see how the uh, continuity of uh, opportunity uh, was very seductive there. But uh, as a member of the uh, sanctions committee, uh, a brilliant strategic device was introduced whereby the word went out to the primarily Western-based financial system uh, to not necessarily return the calls of the banks for financial assistance on the loan side, on the debit side, on the deficit side. And the EU companies were faced and forced to come to grips with the reality. Do they want to uh, irritate their markets in the United States, 330 million uh, people, uh, uh, or do they want to favor the one ninety million uh, dollar, uh, ninety million people market of Iran. They chose the to favor the former. And um, on the sanctions aspect here, what is the likelihood of the Western financial or the international financial system, for that matter, accommodating the financial investment needs uh, that uh, Iran has? Looking at China, Iran has looking at Russia when that JCPOA 2.0 kicks in to reality? Either of you. How is the Western or the international financial system likely to react and accommodate or resist? If they resist, they further the alternate reserve currency. I don't, the answer is I don't know because um, yeah. We don't know what the new agreement's going to be. So I'd have to read the agreement before I could see what the sanctions are um, before you could make any intelligent or informed comment about how the people will react to it. I would only so add sorry, to that I don't that, mean to sidestep uh, the question, but until I see the agreement, it's hard to say how people are going to react to it. All right. Yeah. I would only add that, you know, the the war in Ukraine is going to um, produce, is already producing a major oil price shock, which will throw much of the world into recession this year um, and uh, presumably make funds a little bit harder to access than they would have been otherwise. That, there, there will be big economic changes this year because of the uh, large and long lasting uh, boost in energy prices, which will last to the end of the year. And that's going to uh, increase the likelihood of renewed recession here at home as gas prices go north of $5 a gallon and stay there. 
um, not to speak of, of Europe, of course. So yes, that's, that's gonna be a major factor. We won't be able to escape that. We're, we're at time, time here, and I would ask any listener or viewer, and challenge any listener or viewer to uh, rake through the published media, magazines, newspapers, and the talk shows uh, on the evening news or throughout the day on the nonstop news, if you will find as broad a range of uh, expertise and analysis and mental acuity uh, with regard to some of the most pressing issues, not just of the day, but thus far of this quarter century. Thank you for viewing, thank you for listening, and please join me in thanking uh, our two superb uh, specialists and foreign affairs practitioners who brought together a lifetime of focus on these issues. All the best to everyone. We look forward to the next National Council on U.S.-Arab Relations, Cerebral Massage. <laughs>